Last time on your parent-teacher conference, we discussed an article from the Star-Ledger, which is New Jersey's newspaper of record, from Tuesday, September 5th, and it was right on the front page, Educators Tested Too, as the school year starts. And we spent the whole episode talking just about the first question, one of five. And the question was, what happens when the teacher shortage gets worse? So you can always go back and listen to part one if you want to hear my thoughts about that. I thought it was pretty interesting, though. It's the first time I really looked at that question. What happens when the teaching shortage gets worse? As if the assumptions are already there, but it really doesn't prove its point. I don't think the teacher shortage will be getting worse. It's, I think it might be maintained for a little bit. You know, what am I doing? Usually in the intro of the episode, I usually tell a story that relates to the topic of the episode. And I'm not doing that today. I'm just not. I want to use this time to encourage you to go back at some point, if you haven't already, to listen to part one about teacher shortages. And then, of course, stay tuned to this episode where I address the other four questions that Adam Clark of the Star-Ledger felt teachers would be facing this school year. And I'll give you from my perspective, if we really are facing these concerns that he's talking about. Teachers, are your digital assignments getting lost in the black hole of a digital folder? Can I suggest a solution? FanSchool. FanSchool is a safe and social learning network where students own and share their learning. Think of FanSchool as a digital bulletin board for your students' work. Take a look. Go to fan.school today. That is fan.school. And imagine what your classroom space will look like on fan school. Welcome to your parent-teacher conference, where a 24-7 parent and full-time teacher discusses issues and concerns from both points of view in an attempt to bridge the gap for the sake of kids. So relax, grab a coffee or other comfort drink, and let's talk about it. Hello and welcome to your parent-teacher conference. This is Coach Cullen, your host. If you're a first-time listener, thank you for giving this podcast a try. If you're a regular. Thanks a lot again, as always, for listening. And as we said before, this is part two of our series on educators tested to as the school year starts from the Star-Ledger on September 5th. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns based on this podcast or some of the things I bring up or some of the questions even, even giving me your own insight, please feel free to reach out to me at ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. That's P as in parent, T as in teacher, C as in conference podcast, 411, all one word, ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. And as I always say, I really enjoy the interaction I've had with some of our listeners on a variety of topics that we discuss here as they share their own views and we have a nice go back and forth. If you think this is a good podcast to get out to friends, neighbors, family members, people who are involved in education, either as teachers or parents, remember, tell them to go, you can go on Google Podcast or Apple Podcast, Spotify, Amazon Music, go to the Parent Teacher Conference Podcast, just 
have them type that into a search. There are two, actually there are probably several. You want them to go to the one with the guy with the baseball hat on with a coffee mug covering his mug. That is this parent-teacher conference podcast. But of course, the other thing you can do is just share a link. You know, if you don't know what that is, there's that little box with the arrow pointing up. If you click on there, it should give you an option. I think you can text it out right from there, or you can copy the link and send it in an email out. However you want to do it, it's always great to get more listeners. It's always great to get more interaction on the email, which is, again, ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. So in the last episode, we tackled the first question presented in the article in the Star-Ledger, which is New Jersey statewide newspaper. And that was on teacher shortages. And something I didn't address is how the question was written. What happens when the teacher shortage gets worse? And I realized after reading it again, I don't like how the question was phrased. It's creating an assumption, right? As if the writer of the article, Mr. Adam Clark, knows something that I don't, or he can see the future, actually. I I don't know if the teacher shortage will get worse. That will be something interesting. But what I plan to do here is actually work backwards, not to go to the next question right away, which is how much uglier will the culture wars get? I'm going to save that for the end. But I'm going to address the last question and then go back to the fourth, third, and second. I think there's a lot of similar things we can talk about in the second, third, and fourth questions. But the fifth question was, will a new school safety initiative work? The initiative they're talking about that is every school must have a threat assessment team. And that team must have on it a teacher, administrator, the school safety specialist, a school counselor or social worker, and either a school resource officer or law enforcement liaison. And although that's a great idea, because if you think about it, you're bringing together both people with expertise in the field of behavior, of law enforcement, but you're also bringing teachers into it that see children on a daily basis. So even if it's the teacher representative is not the teacher seeing the issues, I think they would have a better understanding and clarity what that the teacher who is bringing up the child who they believe is troubled in some sense or exhibiting signs that may be destructive to themselves and others, they can explain it better. The only concern is this. If something goes wrong, is that group going to be the one that is blamed as if they missed it, especially if a child flies under the radar? and doesn't exhibit any signs. The other thing is that we need to be careful that we're truly doing or taking steps to protect our students from school shootings that are worth it and aren't not just security theater. That it gives the appearance that we're doing something. Nothing is foolproof and no security measure can be perfect. We can only do the best we can. Now, as a teacher in public school, how do I feel? I feel safe. I can definitely tell you that in the 30 plus years I have been teaching, there really has been a change in the attitude of security for the better. 30 years ago, 
you might have been able to walk right in the front doors of the school, not be stopped, walked around the hallways, maybe even enter the classroom. I think at that point, the teacher would ask you what you were doing there. That, that's Those days are over. You know, even the school I teach at and where my children attend, you're either kept outside or brought into a small room with bulletproof glass between you and the secretary or the school resource officer, and they will confirm your purpose of being there. If your child forgot their lunch, you're basically told, just leave it in a box there, we'll pick it up after you leave. We'll make sure it gets to your child. They're real, they really have limited the people who enter the school building, and that makes sense. Now the question is, as a teacher, do I live in fear? You know, it's interesting, I looked at a CNN article about school safety. And this is from a woman named Brianna Taktani. She's a seventh grade teacher just like me and doesn't say what school, but does say the county she works in in New Jersey. And it's not that far away. And here's her quote. I've come to terms with the fact that I might die in my classroom. School was a good place to be a kid. And it just feels that's kind of changing. I, I I don't share her pessimistic view. I don't. I think my school has done a good job in feeling protected. You know, I guess I have the ability of looking back over 30 years and see the steps that have been taken in schools to protect the students, to protect the staff. And nothing is going to be perfect. Ms. Tectani says she has come to terms with the fact that she may die in her classroom. But has she come to terms with the fact that she could die in a whole lot of other places as well? Two years ago, I was driving to go get my daughter from a volleyball practice, going across a these back roads, an intersection I have gone through many times, where I know I did not have a stop sign, but the people to my right and left do. And as I was almost out of the intersection, out of the corner of my eye, I saw a car barreling down at me, and that car was not going to stop at the stop sign, but would stop when it made contact with my car flipping me. Has she come to terms with the fact that every time she steps in her car, that she may die? I mean, it's good to have a healthy fear, and it's good to be risk-averse, but you can't live your life in fear. Then you're not really living. And when I look around what schools have done, I mean, the only, if she's come to turn, if it's true, then she needs to question what, why can't her school do more? Maybe her school isn't doing more, but I doubt that. If she teaches in a public school in New Jersey, I highly doubt because there's the mandates put on schools to take certain steps towards security. I highly doubt that's the problem. So yes, I feel comfortable every day going into my school to teach. But this threat assessment team, I gotta be honest, it doesn't make me feel more safe. It doesn't make me feel less safe. I'll, you know, it's. I think some of those conversations were taking place among the guidance counselors and social workers and school psychologists already. So it just codifies what should have been taking place all along. So like I said, I. It doesn't make me feel more safe, but it doesn't make me feel less safe. I feel safe in school. Perfectly safe? No. But you're never perfectly safe. But reasonably safe. And that's a good place to be. 
The next two questions go together. Are students making up enough ground from COVID-era learning loss? And are schools better prepared to tackle a mental health crisis? I think they, those two questions go together. I mean, are schools prepared to tackle the mental health crisis? Well, the issue is, I believe that part of the mental health crisis is the COVID era issues that we created by shuttering kids in their bedrooms with a Chromebook for a year and a half. Okay, learning loss. Let's get this one out of the way. It's not that learning was lost and is unrecoverable during COVID. Because of the measures that needed to be taken, like getting their instruction over Google Meet or a Zoom call, you kind of realize how much teachers do in the classroom to try to keep kids focused. The whole idea of a child being self-governing was really put to the test and showed flawed. As I've spoken before in other podcasts, there is something called childism. This idea that we discriminate against children, almost like we need to treat them like little adults, even though science of brain research doesn't prove that in terms of the development of their minds, not really happening until their mid-20s. Really, COVID showed us that just allowing most kids to say, learn on your own, doesn't work. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there aren't kids who are self-initiators, but there's a lot of kids who need the direction and guidance of adults or in this case, teachers, to help them with the focus that they need to learn material, or even the push, the motivation, the morale boosting. But the learning wasn't lost. It wasn't like it disappeared never to come back. We have to be understanding that by putting children in that situation, they are behind, not lost. So, I mean, I don't know what the statistics are, but let's say a current 8th grader might be where we expected a 7th grader to be at. That's, that's what I'm talking about. So the real question is, what are schools going to do to address that? Or is the expectation going to be different by the time they get to high school? Because let's be honest, the resources aren't there. The only way you can do the resources is to hire maybe more interventionists, but then you get hit with the teacher shortage issue that we talked about in the last episode. Let's face reality, which I think a lot of times we don't face when it comes to education. You can't throw more money at it. You don't have the labor force. You can't add more time to the school day. So where are you going to do these interventions? How are you going to do it? And maybe one of the reasons for the teacher shortages is because society or Let's be honest, politicians have this view of, hey, if we just make a mandate for the school, the teachers can magically make it happen when you don't give them the time, the resources, the labor force, etc. And maybe that's part of the frustration that teachers are having. I mean, a parent could get tutoring. They could pay for tutoring to help their child catch up. Maybe that is an option for students who are truly well behind where they should be, the school has to offer after-school tutoring. Then it's up to the parent, do I want my child to have that extra hour or two each week at home or at school? Perhaps it's even a gap year program, something after high school to prepare them for college. Hey, if you're an 
entrepreneur, that's maybe something to think about in the next couple of years. Creating a program where students who might be a little bit behind where they need to be for freshman year in college attend for a year, maybe a few hours a day, so that way they can get a job afterwards. You don't want to make it too expensive. You want to appeal to a student that, again, a parent and their child realize they're not ready for college and they don't even want to go to community college. That's why you don't want to make it too expensive because at some price point, the parents are going to say, well, I'll just send my kid to community college. I don't know. Just throw, I mean, I just came up with that. I'm just throwing it out as a possibility to restore this. But I guess what the comeback will be is, well, shouldn't public education provide that? And I got to be honest, I don't know. That goes back to the whole argument of, again, teachers as miracle workers. Just throw more money, make more mandates, and it will happen. That's just not true. Maybe it's time for parents and private entities to start thinking to themselves, what can we do to cover that gap? And that leads us to the mental health issues in school. Again, I think a little bit of this discussion is going to deal with the labor issues in terms of teacher shortages, throwing money at the situation, just making a mandate and magically it will happen. I mean, I know politicians like running on that stuff. I helped pass this law, but how is it really being covered in reality? It's kind of like my my children's school district. They have this thing called personal success plan. You know what it is? The child fill out a survey. It, it, it's really ridiculous. And, and they have a director of this. Like, where the heck is my tax dollars going? But yet, they can promote that every kid has a personal success plan. But I don't think they ever really talk about it with anybody. I talk about personal success plans with my child all the time. I don't really need the school to do it. And if you think a kid's falling through the gaps on that sense, and that's why you have guidance counselors for it. I'm sure they're doing their job. But now the school district promotes this all. And in fact, they even hire a director of this hall, and you kind of scratch your head at it. So mental health issues. Uh, again, we're going to go back to the COVID days. You lock the kid in their room during the time of their life where they're learning social skills. They're learning how to be friends with other kids. They're learning how to resolve conflicts among friends. Sometimes it's messy. It, it is. I mean, we were kids once too, but I think that some of that development was hindered because we put them in their bedrooms for over a year behind a computer, seeing little faces on a screen, rather being next to some kid and other kids and being involved on the playground. And I know this is this is the big push for social-emotional learning. And I know people on the right have some issues with it. What I've seen is pretty innocuous. It's just, well, the best way to explain it is what you typically learned in Sunday school. You know, do unto others. You know, do to other people or treat other people how you wish to be treated. It's the golden rule. A lot of it. And I don't like the I don't like the insinuation that most parents aren't doing that. I, I think most parents are doing it. I do believe that a difference between the era I grew up in and the era I teach in is more parents today are likely to enable their child or to believe their child over their child's teacher. I, it's not like it never happened when I was a kid. But I do agree that most of my friends' parents would never have done that. They would always trust the teacher. 
does that mean that the cases that I have to deal with are like over 50%? No, it's still low. It really is, but it is greater. That's why I just don't buy the concept that some of these how to be a good human being lessons aren't being learned at home. I think parents are doing it. But as a parent, you have every right to ask if they're teaching a social-emotional learning curriculum to take a look at it. I think that's within your prerogative. But I'm going to tell you, and I've shared, I had a whole episode on this, and I know some, I know some teachers will disagree with me. I think the best social-emotional learning out there is allowing kids more time at recess. When I was a kid, and I tell this to my students, they get a little upset with me, they go, you know, I had a half hour for lunch when I was a kid. And like, that's what we have. We have a half hour for lunch. I go, no, you have a half hour for lunch in recess. I have a half, I had a half hour for lunch. You really only have like 20 minutes for lunch, 10 minutes for recess. I had a half hour for lunch and a half hour for recess, K through eight. And they get all jealous of that. But we've really cut down on recess time for two reasons. One, we want more time in the academic day. We didn't see recess as more than just a break for the teachers. That's really what it became. Like at my school, my K through eight, I believe what, what happened was teachers would have recess duty, the other teachers would have off. So you just rotate through each week or maybe each day, I don't remember how it worked. I think it was each week, two different teachers would be on the playground with us, the other teachers would have a break. So they took away that time and they divvied up the, the minutes into the different academic classes to extend the academic learning time. But they didn't see the value that recess played. I think that's part of it. They were very short-sighted. Recess is an important part of social-emotional learning because it's on the playgrounds where you build relationships with peers. It's on the playground where you settle disputes peacefully. And you do have a watchful eye, but you but the teachers are standing back, only stepping in if they start seeing get heated, right? That's that's when, like when I was on the playground and you were playing kickball and there's an out and safe call and you're arguing about it, the teachers never walked over unless it, the two kids got those I'm ready to fight look on their eyes. And then the teachers come hustling over and say, hey, whoa, 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 what's going on? In 10 minutes, you don't even have time to really start the game, let alone get into a dispute. And I think that's part of it too. You cut down on some of these problems because you don't have free unstructured time or as much free unstructured time in a school day. And I think that's another issue with the mental health crisis. Again, going back to my youth and maybe perhaps even your youth, there is no play dates. When I was based by second or third grade, I was telling my mom, hey, I'm going over John's house. And I went over John's house. She didn't come with me to have tea with John's mom. We played GI Joes. We played wiffle ball. We kicked the soccer ball around. And then I went home. There was some rec programs. I mean, there was a little league. But often, I would just go to the park or this school near my house. And there were a bunch of kids there. And we would figure out if we were going to play soccer that day or football or baseball or basketball, kickball. And then we just played. There were no adults around. Even summer rec. Um, I remember summer rec. We used to play baseball every day during summer rec. The, the teenagers, college-age kids who were doing the rec at the school, they would just stay off to the side. They had a little picnic table where if kids weren't 
going to be playing baseball. They had knock hockey. They can make little bracelets like macrame bracelets. But they never organized us to play any of the sports games we were playing. We just did it. But today, everything is structured. Every minute of a kid's day. That's how school is. It is so hyper-structured. It's We're trying to child-proof childhood. And I think it comes at the risk of depriving children the opportunity to problem-solve on their own, to figure it out. I went to a coaching clinic. I was going to coach my daughter's second and third grade soccer team. So the town rec program sent me to a coaching clinic. And the funny thing was I had been coaching youth soccer, middle school soccer, for about over 20 years at that point. So I went to the meeting, but I did learn something. And I did learn some things. It was actually very beneficial in the end. But the first thing the instructor told us Friday night when we got there was that United States soccer was wondering, what are we doing wrong in our youth programs? You know, the United States men's team, the women's team isn't isn't an issue, obviously. But the United States men's team has never reached the upper echelons of world-class teams, like in the World Cup. And it's not because we don't have the money, we don't have the resources. We definitely have the athletic ability, because look at the United States and other sports. So why don't we have it in soccer? And why are there poorer countries that don't have the population or the money, the resources, produce some great programs? Like, look back to the past, to Brazil, and when they were dominating the World Cup. You know, Pele, the great star of those Brazilian teams, grew up on the streets to become this great soccer player. He, You know, today in the United States, you have kids from like five years old getting into these elite programs and thousands and thousands of dollars being thrown at these coaches. And they are developing these great skills. And they're, you know, when you look at them, they're, you're like, that obviously they had better training than Pele. But why aren't we producing Pele's? And you can even say today, why aren't we producing Messi's or Ronaldo's? And one of the things United States soccer realized was because we don't give our soccer players the time to figure it out on their own. They saw a benefit for kids in poor countries to get a soccer ball on the street and start kicking it around on their own without an adult. They saw a benefit for kids to watch what their favorite stars were doing on the screen and try to replicate it rather than a coach telling them, you must do it this way. So what United States soccer was starting to encourage coaches to do was really, and you and you see this with soccer, now you're starting to see this when you see a soccer practice, that a lot of it is small game scrimmaging. You put kids in different scenarios and then they just play a game. The reason being is that they take the problem solving that they're doing in these small sided scrimmages, not large, large, you know, 11 v 11 games. It could be as simple as 1v1 or 2v2. But you, you take these small games and the kids are processing. And sure, sometimes a coach will step in and say, hey, did you consider this? But a lot of the time, it's just kids working things out on their own and then they translate that to the game. And we are much like, I think a lot of times in teaching, even in parenting, we are the 
It has to be a strict structure. And we're not teaching kids to be able to problem solve, conflict, develop friendships on their own. It's almost like we're trying to program them in the right way rather than allowing them to figure it out. And that has come with a detriment, uh, I, I think, with mental health issues. A great book, and I've recommended this in the past, is The Coddling of the American Mind by Greg Lukanoff and Jonathan Haidt. Read that book, because it really expresses this concern I'm talking about, that we are so child-proofing things that we're producing a generation that can't cope when problems occur. And they will occur. The last question, which was a second question, it was touched on a little bit at the end of the episode last week, is... How much uglier will the culture wars get? Ashley Koning, who is the director of the Eagleton Institute of Public Policy, which is out of Rutgers University, if you didn't know, that's the State University of New Jersey, says that the culture war issue, quote, this is an issue that's likely not going to go away. Now, one thing I didn't like in the article, it presented it as purely a creation of the Republican Party. And that annoys me. Because of this, I'm not denying that the Republican Party has gone all in on parental rights. I see this in my own state. It's actually going to be interesting this off-year election where the focus is on our state legislature. It's going to be interesting because a lot of Republican candidates are running on the issue of parental rights in a very blue state. But I don't think that the Republicans have stirred the issue up. I think they've jumped on the bandwagon and are now co-opting it for their benefit. And I believe in their quest to find something to fight, they go to the extreme and they go overboard. In their fear of critical race theory, which is a thing, I'm not going to gaslight you by saying that there aren't teachers that are taking a form of that, those ideas and bringing them into the classroom, but I think it's rare. But in their quest to defeat CRT, they're attacking books that have nothing to do with CRT. The story of Ruby Bridges, written by Ruby Bridges, a young girl who desegregated her school in the, I think, the late 50s, early 60s. And she, the, the woman today wrote a children's book. And in a Tennessee school district, that book was banned for concern about CRT. It has nothing to do with CRT. That is a fact of American history that we cannot hide, nor should we hide, lest something similar happens again to another group of people. But yet, on the other hand, you have people defending the placement of books in the classroom that are very sexually explicit and should be a book that parents decide if their child is ready to read it and not the school, in my, in my personal view. I don't know if you've seen the news clip of Senator John Kennedy and not the president. There is a, if you didn't know, there's a Louisiana senator named John Kennedy. He's an older gentleman, definitely has a Southern drawl to his voice. And in a committee meeting, he read from some of the more explicit sections of the book Gender Queer by Maya Kobabi. I may not have gotten that last name right, so my apologies if I didn't. And you may have seen clips of parents reading sections of similar books in school board meetings and being told they can't because the content is too sexually explicit, making their point for them. 
Going back to the book Genderqueer, I found an article from the New York Post where it says this. Kobabi responded basically to Kennedy's reading in the Senate committee hearing. Quote, it keeps being called a children's book. Senator Kennedy implied it was a children's book, but I think that's coming from a misreading of the comic book form. Gender queer is a comic and in full color, but that doesn't mean it's for children. And I'm going to be honest here. How explicit do you need to get? Is its explicitness purposely being provocative in order to get readers? Or in other words, like clickbait, right? Like they say, the only bad press is no press. And many of us would never even known the title of genderqueer if it wasn't so titillating. But those supportive of those books would say kids who are members of the LPTQ community need them to know that their story isn't a unique story. So here's the nitty gritty. You have one side of the culture war who wants to introduce racial and issues of human sexuality from a liberal perspective and the other side in the war want to present racial and issues of human sexuality from a more conservative point of view. The liberal side tends to say, trust the educators. The conservative side tends to say, trust the parents. And being honest, the Star Ledger, the newspaper I've been reading from, they're a combatant in the war. They are, I don't believe they're giving a fair shake to the conservative side. They, even by addressing this is a Republican issue, rather than making any attempt to present these parents' concerns in a fair and balanced way, they rather just dismiss them as ignorant and uninformed. But where should teachers side in the culture wars? On one side, we see colleagues that we know have the best of intentions being attacked or being questioned for a particular lesson or a book introduced in class as if they were some of those progressive wacky teachers that you often see on the libs of TikTok video on Twitter. When the truth is, it's not even close to being that. And what happens is, you circle the wagons around that teacher to protect them because you don't want the same thing happening to you. But on the other hand, I also know teachers who see the curriculum as being pushed by activists, being passed by state boards of education and mandates being placed by legislatures that they're tr deeply troubled by. As a parent, they, don't, they, they believe some of these things are the purview of the family and not the school. And they're being asked to put these this content in their curriculum. Or even to a lesser extent, if they're not parents, realizing that by going all out in doing exactly what is being prescribed by the activists on the left, that there will not be peace in their school community. And I know I'm talking from the perspective of a teacher in a blue state, teacher in red states like Florida, where the exact reverse is happening, that the government, instead of leaning to the progressive left, is leaning to the far right. But again, it's the issue of most teachers just want to teach their curriculum rather than being involved in the politics of it, even though I know in the last episode there are teachers who say, 
teaching is political from Paul Paulo Fierre, I think a lot of teachers, if they understood where it's coming from and what's really behind it, they would say, screw Paulo Freire and his agenda. So what is the teacher that's in no man's land supposed to do? Well, I'm going to tell you something. Every teacher I've talked to don't want any part of the extremes, either side. Moving books, removing curriculum, questioning every little act a teacher does, looking for some boogeyman that just doesn't exist just so they can appear triumphant. And on the left that want to be so licentious and so open that even if you accept every one of their tenets but one, they will still accuse you of being too far to the right. So what's my advice here on the culture war for both parents and teachers? For parents, talk to your kids. I ask my kids all the time, what are you learning about in history? What are you learning about in English? And we talk about it, or I try to. Sometimes they aren't very forthcoming, and it's not because they're trying to hide anything. It's just the type of kids they are. But when they do, we talk about it. We talk about topics and ideas from our point of view, about from our religious faith, from what how we've been raised and what we cherish as a family. Have a dialogue with your child and ask them, if you're truly concerned about the curriculum, ask them direct questions. Is this being taught? I think you're going to wind up in most cases, it really isn't. Like I said, most teachers just want to avoid a lot of the mess that these wars are causing from both sides. So for the parent, don't just ask your kid, what do you have for homework? Do you have a test coming up? Start asking them, what are you talking about in? And use that time to share your beliefs. For the teacher, I know that some of you who are listening are hiding what you're doing and has nothing to do with you want your parents to know. It's just that you don't want parents to attack you from either side. You don't want to be involved in the war. But I would say be transparent. Let your students' parents know what you're teaching. I do that every week. I tell them the topics we're going to learn. And I also have a reason why. And it's not just because it's in the curriculum. I mean, it's in the curriculum. But I can also share the purpose. And if you're in a humanities types class, like a literature class or history like I'm in, you really need to strive to be neutral. Every year in October, we play the presidential election game. Students get together, they have to choose a party platform, choose candidates, and they race around the country, well, on a map of the country, trying to earn electoral votes to get their candidate over 270. Well, way back in 2004, I happened to have a student teacher. And of course, it's a presidential election year. It was Bush versus Kerry. So of course, my student teacher, you know, a senior in college, fresh full of ideas, going to change the world. Whenever we talked about the actual presidential election or the campaign, I would have to constantly remind him that he was being too heavy-handed to one side over the other. I had to keep on telling him, we're not here as teachers to teach them what to think, but how to think. Really what I said had very little effect on them. So on election day, when they made their last campaign moves for the game, they actually had to vote. There were three questions on their ballot. One was, if you're 18 and could vote for one of the two major candidates, who would you vote for? The second question was, who do you believe Mr. Cullen voted for in this presidential election? And third was, 
who do you believe Mr. and it was our student teacher voted for in the presidential election? The students guessed the candidate my student teacher voted for 80% to 20%. That wasn't just one class. That was the whole seventh grade, 80% to 20%. That means his bias towards one candidate was pretty clear in every single class. On the vote about who I voted for, 52% got it right. That's pretty darn near 50-50. And that's where you want to be as a teacher. And I think that's where you want to be with the culture war as well. It reminds me of a quote from the classic 1983 movie War Games. Hopefully you know the movie I'm talking about with Matthew Broderick in it. And just being honest, with all the remakes Hollywood tends to do and the huge discussion around artificial intelligence, AI right now, I am surprised there has not been a push to remake war games. But I believe a quote from the Whopper, the name of the computer, also known as Joshua, when he was trying to learn the winning strategy in global thermonuclear war, by playing tic-tac-toe. This quote can also be used by teachers when it comes to the current culture wars in education. The only winning move is not to play. Thank you for joining me on the Parent Teacher Conference podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this podcast with friends. They can be teachers, they can be parents, they can be someone who's just interested in education and parenting. If you have a comment, a question, or an idea for a future topic, please feel free to reach out to me at ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. Remember, a good teacher cares deeply for their students. But good parents love those students, their children, deeply.